Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about challenging spring weather and how growers can move forward. We have four members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Uh, Brad Carlson. I'm an Extension educator. I work out of the regional office in Mankato. Annie Nelson. I'm a regional educator and I work out of the St. Cloud Regional Office. Hi, my name is Dr. Lindsay Pease, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate, and I'm stationed at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. And this is Jeff Strock down at the uh, Southwestern Research, Research and Outreach Center near Lamberton, uh, also a, a soil scientist, and uh, uh, looking forward to talking about a really relevant topic, Paul. Great, yeah, so uh, we've got a kind of a good... Uh, overview of the state here from from you four. Can you each uh, give us a quick update on what field conditions are looking like in your part of the state? Well, I can start. Uh, South Central Minnesota actually was uh, a part of the state that was still considered to be in somewhat moderate drought uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, but uh, uh, now we've been getting uh, uh, quite a bit of precipitation over the last two weeks. I, I'm not quite sure that we're quite to field capacity yet, but we're getting close. And I, I think when the next time I see that uh, drought monitor, uh, that's probably going to have, uh, have been removed for this part of the state. But uh, as with everybody, uh, the, the cold soil temperatures, the cold weather has also been a factor. Um, you know, in addition to that, uh, when the precip that we have got and the soil moisture we have got uh, just doesn't dry out. It's staying cloudy, despite the fact that it's been very windy. Uh, and so from that standpoint, uh, very little field work has been done this spring in, in South Central Minnesota. Uh, I was talking to somebody over the weekend who reported some corn being planted kind of down by the Iowa border, but it came with the caveat that this person, uh, if, if, if he was accurate, suggested the person doing the planting had about 10,000 acres to plant and they just simply weren't going to wait anymore. Uh, that, that no one else uh, who, who uh, had the luxury of time uh, was out in the field. Uh, but very little field activity has happened in, in the South Central area. I'm, I'm not hardly even seeing anybody out picking rocks or, uh, or even taking soil samples right now. You know, that, that's really interesting, Brad. Uh, a little bit of contrast here in the Southwest, uh, you know, certainly west of you, uh, where we've actually stayed in that sort of dry zone. Uh, a lot of the precipitation that's been heading our way has kind of almost sort of parted like the Red Sea around southwestern Minnesota and gone east of us, gone north of us, gone west of us. And so we actually have fairly decent soil conditions in terms of moisture, uh, at least for planting. Uh, ideally, they'd we'd have a bit more moisture uh, coming after the seed gets in the ground because our profile is, is still rather dry. We've been out uh, doing a little tiling uh, around here and, and digging around looking for, for those tile. Uh, we, we have not really had any significant wet, sticky conditions out there. Um, the, the biggest problem, like you sort of articulated, Brad, uh, that we have around here is is, is uh, soil temperatures. You know, I, I looked at our data. We've only been above 55 degrees twice in the last month and a half. Uh, otherwise, most of our soil temps are down in the 30s and 40s, which is clearly not conducive. But uh, we're getting to that time of year where, uh, 
you know, it's got to be go time, right? The farmers are going to need to get out there and start getting seed in the ground because, you know, eventually it will warm up, right? And, uh, you know, the longer we wait, uh, the more likely as we have to wait longer and longer, especially with potential rain in the forecast uh, coming up that, uh, you know, we're going to start losing yield potential. So um, um, I've only seen a couple of fields planted around here. Um, uh, and, um, but yesterday uh, and today, uh, before the rains are forecast to come, we've seen a, a lot of fertilizer out there and a lot of uh, secondary cultivation happening to get that worked in. Uh, usually, usually it's been PK and urea right now. Well, Jeff, 55 degrees soil moisture seems like a dream, especially in Northwest Minnesota. I don't even think we've hit that a single day yet, which I mean is more expected for way up north where I'm at. But um, I think I'll also talk about that is, is some of what made that flooding that we had in Crookston and the Red River Valley so much worse this past weekend. Um, so just to recap, um, on Saturday, April 23rd, we had two inches of rain that fell here in Crookston on top of melting snow um, and hail. And I actually had a couple of reports of people who thought their houses may have got hit by a tornado. Um, so yeah, so we had really severe weather um, on Saturday, April 23rd. And all of that happened on ground that was still frozen at about six inch depth. So that's why we saw such massive, massive flooding over the weekend. And um, actually, so we had the worst flood crest in Crookston since the 97 flood. Um, it was the, the third Third highest uh, crest at the Red River, Red Lake River in Crookston since, uh, since 97. Um, actually the third one overall the other one was like 1969 or, or something so the, so i mean really put all the flood uh reduction structures to the test I, I know that some people's homes did get flooded um most of the city were pretty fortunate though but um also you know my sump pump has been working overtime at my own house since then so uh fingers crossed that it holds out until we dry out but i was really really surprised driving around just um even yesterday so we're recording this on on a thursday morning and so by you know the wednesday after that saturday um a lot of the water has gone off the fields um, and I do think the water probably helped melt some of that ice that was left. If you think about, you know, an ice ice cube in a, in a glass, whether or not you add water or not to it, it's going to melt faster in water than if it's just sitting in, um, in the cup by itself. You know, basic, simple science experiment you could do at home, uh, <laughs> but also applies to our soil. So I think it did help us maybe thaw out those last, um, I mean, it's still not warm. <laughs> <laughs> soils are still you know low 40s um as of this morning but we're getting there um but yeah i think it's just really hard for a lot of guys you know to be thinking about you know we might be you know when we might be able to get out in the field it's just so hard to say at this point yeah that's that's so crazy Lindsay. all the issues you're having up there i think in central minnesota we have these two kind of drastic soil textures, right? So we have some heavy pockets, right? And then you drive two miles down the road and it's almost pure beach sand. And so I'm really seeing this great mix of what field conditions are like here um, near St. Cloud. And so I've seen some traditionally vegetable fields 
that have had a lot of field work done even two weeks ago, right? And so, but then we have these other big pockets where there's standing water, like it's pretty risky to even go out there. And so I think in these sandy soils, really the only thing holding us back right now is, is those cold soil temperatures. But what is worked up looks very beautiful, nice and fluffy for a sand. And so, you know, if we could just get some warm weather, I think we'd be good to go in those sandy soils. And it might take a few more weeks with those heavier soils. Yeah, and we have a little bit of, you know, dichotomy in the valley too, as you get further east, we have sandier soils and, and they've fared a little bit better on, you know, infiltration, but yeah, still, um, so yeah, so we see a little bit of that too, Annie, but not quite as much uh, as you do. So after a cold, wet April with not much field work, what should growers be thinking about heading into May? Well, I think a lot of it depends on how much uh, how much work got done last fall. Uh, of course, the uh, the elephant in the room for a lot of people is nitrogen application. Uh, in terms of getting it done, the desire to have it applied prior to planting, uh, but then also because of the that uh, umbrella issue of the price uh, uh, and and a little bit of the you know this this combination of. Uh, having booked the nitrogen because there was no other way to ensure it was going to be available, you know, so now it's bought and maybe you're kind of stuck with how you're going to apply it or what, what you bought if you bought uh, anhydrous uh, intending to do a spring application. Uh, that might be a little bit uh, uh, tricky, uh, but then there's, there's some other uh, ripples in here also because uh, while, while we're talking nutrient management, uh, there's been a lot of issues relative to herbicide availability, uh, particularly I know like uh, glyphosate and glufosinate have had problems. And so there was a lot of switch to uh, pre-plant, uh, pre uh, pre-emerge herbicides. A lot of that ends up getting applied with a nitrogen source. And so if that was, uh, that was part of the, the plan there was to uh, apply a pre-herbicide and put some 28% with that, you know, then that also is, is an issue also. Uh, so I, I guess, uh, I think producers obviously all know their own situation. And so it really, it kind of comes down to um, looking at specifically what, uh, what you need to do and prioritizing it. It's in a, in a very simple manner. Uh, in a lot of cases, our crops are going to be forgiving. Our corn crop is going to be forgiving of doing the application after the crop gets planted uh, with some exceptions. Uh, we know that in high residue situations, uh, we tend to see a, a benefit of at least getting some starter fertilizer on there. Uh, and it also poses a little bit of a risk if you're doing, for instance, a top dress uh, urea uh, application and it's landing on a lot of residue, uh, you could temporarily immobilize uh, that nitrogen and, and cause uh, some deficiency symptoms. Uh, but, uh, but beyond that, uh, if you're just in a simple corn soybean rotation, a lot of cases, uh, I would prioritize getting planted uh, the later it gets. Uh, we have the ability, the infrastructure to get a lot of nitrogen applied as top grass um, with, with row straddling equipment in a hurry, uh, but you'll need to be having conversations with uh, with your dealers about that. And, and of course, uh, again, uh, if you've got corn on corn situations, uh, that needs to be a priority to get at least some of your nitrogen applied before planting time. Brad, you know, you, you talk uh, about uh, some of that uh, 
you know, need to really consider how and when we're going to get that nitrogen down. Uh, a couple of thoughts and observations I've had from down here in the Southwest. It really seemed like coming out of the drought conditions that we had last summer uh, and kind of going into fall that um, remarkably around here, uh, ordinarily you know, the farmers will, will do some tillage on the corn and the corn stalks that are out there and maybe run some anhydrous through uh, in their bean ground. So there's not a lot of disturbance out there. Um, in, in quite a few of my travels though, uh, this, this last fall and into the spring, there were a lot of people who really did not do much tillage in the fall at all. Maybe some of it was because it was a little bit on the wetter side. We did have uh, a little bit of moisture down here that was made things a bit sticky in the in the early part of the fall. But one of the other thoughts that I've had is is, is uh, you know my predecessor Wally Nelson. I remember uh, having conversations with him about some of the previous droughts that we've had in say '76 and in the '87, '88, '89 period where. Uh, they were recommending the farmers to to try to minimize some of that tillage and and leave some of the residue out there that might help trap some snow and and uh, allow some additional infiltration into the ground in the spring. So I'm I'm not sure why we saw uh, less tillage around here, but it really does look like to me that farmers are going to need to be getting some of that fertilizer on this spring, especially nitrogen, uh, in quite a few of the fields around here. Um, so there'll there'll be there'll be a lot uh, a lot of spring applications uh, if the fields conditions are suitable. Now, one of the things uh, too that uh, just struck me uh, that you were talking about, and and that is is that uh, across the state uh, we've got these uh, these prob projects, these long term nitrogen projects that uh, Fabian Fernandez has been kind of shepherding along for the past few years, and um, he uh, he uh, sent out a, a note here a couple of weeks ago and. Uh, uh, one of the things that we've done now uh, is we've gone out and uh, in that long-term nitrogen study, we've uh, taken soil samples now to measure residual nitrate uh, in the spring. Um, and uh, so I know here at uh, Lamberton, we just got those taken yesterday. So we'll be sending them into the lab to, uh, to get those uh, extracted and get the results back quick so that we can really see, you know, what do we have residual from last year, uh, you know, given the drought conditions. I mean, we had pretty decent yields, but um, I'm guessing that there probably still is a bit of residual end left. So thinking about the conditions of the spring bread too, you know, if we do have some residual and especially in those corn on corn situations, that, that could actually help the farmers if they have a little bit of a delay, you know, if they get some starter or something on early with the seed um, that, you know, there might be some nitrogen, you know, in that second or third foot down there yet uh, from the drought last fall that didn't get used that maybe will be available if we've got some delays in getting some additional N on the spring. That's a good point, Jeff, and that's actually something we've been stressing this winter is talking about the potential for carryover nitrogen because of the drought is something we see historically. Uh, the, the, uh, the technique that we recommend is taking a two-foot uh, soil, soil sample to uh, analyze for residual nitrates and then crediting uh, that towards next year's uh, uh, nitrogen application. The, uh, we've talked about this in, in previous uh, podcasts and through other areas, uh, 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 blogs and so forth, that, that uh, data shared with us from Minnesota Valley testing labs 
showed that 70% of the samples that they had submitted to them this last fall for analysis showed a nitrogen credit. And so there is a great ability to do that. You know, the problem is though, is as we look at best practices uh, or recommended practices with taking that soil nitrate test, of course, it's going to require uh, being able to get out and take the soil samples, get them analyzed, get the results back, and then be able to have time to make a, a correction with your nitrogen application, uh, which of course, as time is becoming shorter and shorter, the, uh, the ability or the patience of the individual uh, to do that is going to be kind of stretched. Uh, the point though that I would also like to stress is, is if you applied some of your fertilizer in the fall, uh, or if you're thinking about going in and applying maybe say a half rate, Remember that that test is not calibrated uh, for having a, a previous fertilizer application. And so it's going to be very difficult to assess what you're picking up in that soil sample that's attributable to residual or carryover nitrogen and what is attributable to the amount of nitrogen you already applied. Uh, I'd be very careful about that if you're looking at, uh, at taking that soil test uh, and you're looking also at, at getting in the field uh, maybe before you're able to get the results back, make sure you leave at least a small area unfertilized so that when you take a soil sample, it is going to give you an accurate representation of what's there for residual nitrate. Uh, uh, but uh, I don't know, I, I'm, we, we've been stressing uh, farmers to try and take credit for that nitrogen. I'm just worried that the way this spring is playing out, uh, it's just not, uh, it's not really uh, uh, allowing for that to happen very well. Yeah, you, well, and in kind of the vein of, of planning and trying to get out in the fields, would soil sampling, even if you can do it by hand, and if you don't have to drive a truck out in the field, you theoretically could, you know, get out there with your mud boots and, and take a soil sample if, you know, you're, you're ready, waiting, anxious to get out in the field, but can't quite drive any equipment out there. So that, that could be a good option for, for some of you. So after two drier than normal years, this spring has looked a lot more like the wet springs we've been getting more of the last couple of decades. How can growers better manage nutrients and water as Minnesota's climate gets increasingly wetter? Oh, I'll jump in here. Um, I want to talk specifically about the sandy soils. I mean, for years, we've stressed the, the need for at least one split application, right? But I think in, our, in the last few years in our research, we've started to see that maybe you could really get some benefit from a three or a four split throughout the season. And, you know, in our last question, we, we talked about if you can't get in with that nitrogen application right away before planting, going after planting, it might be a better option. And in, for corn and sandy soils, we, could, we see that you can wait until B2 consistently, not even in a wet year, um, and your yields turn out fine if you if you get at least you know maybe 20 pounds on by V2 you should be okay and then everything after that and so really with these sandy soils doing the split applications is honestly going to be your best bet to keep that nitrogen around where you want it and you know if you can't do that maybe this is the time where you look at a coated urea product right so maybe going out in the field four times just is not a great option for you. You know, gas costs a lot of money these days. And so that might be an option to look into. Um, so that's what I would suggest. 
Yeah, it's your comment uh, and question there, Paul, is is really pretty interesting to think about. And I, I you know, as, as the as uh, as one of the two soil scientists, the uh, kind of hardcore soil physics people like Lindsay and I on the on the broadcast today, uh, I might dig into the weeds a little bit here and 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 maybe you know think about and talk a little bit about you know your 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 observation related to, uh, you know, dry and wet conditions. Uh, I, I had a recent conversation with Dennis Toddy, uh, who's uh, the director of the Midwest Climate Hub down in uh, Ames. And uh, we were, we were chit-chatting about a, uh, about a number of things. And, and he was really excited. He said, Jeff, he said, I, I just recently, you know, updated the, the last 30 year normals. And, and I saw this really, really interesting, uh, uh, you know, data signal uh, in my data. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I said, let me guess. I said, did you see uh, uh, a bimodal distribution? And uh, for those of you out there in the, in the world that don't understand what a bimodal distribution is, it's, it's kind of like we see camels with one hump and we see camels with two humps, all right? So the bimodal one is the camel with two humps, all right? So one of the signals that Dennis has seen and we've seen here in Southwestern Minnesota uh, for the last 10 to 15 years in our precipitation record is this bimodal distribution or two humps that is starting to occur. And uh, what's really interesting about it is, is that uh, where we used to see our, our peaks of, of precipitation in June and July, we still see it there. But the magnitude of that peak uh, if you look at it on average, is, is slightly lower than what it used to be. Um, and, and then we get this period of drier conditions than we've had in the past during the middle part of the summer, July and August. And then all of a sudden, the end of August, September, October, it starts to go back up and, and we start getting moisture. And any farmer that's out there who's been out there trying to harvest beans and corn in September and October the last five years is, is knowing exactly what I'm talking about, where it's dry, 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 dry. And, and we're thinking, oh, we're going to get into the field and get harvesting early. And then all of a sudden it gets wet, the ground gets wet and, and it you know, kind of delays things a little bit. So um, I think when we think about nutrient management, uh, we've really got to kind of put that sort of a distribution of rainfall in perspective, right? Because it, it really does kind of characterize uh, for some of the areas of the state that we're talking about this year, what we're really seeing, uh, that, that we're seeing this, this rather wet spring in certain areas. And, um, you know, it's, it's created some, some challenges for farmers to, to get some of that fertilizer down. And of course the cold temperatures haven't helped to get the, the seed in the ground, but, um, you know, I think when, when you think about, uh, what, what Annie was just talking about that, you know, we, we might need to be thinking a little bit more about split applications, uh, as, as a tool, um, you know, that, that might actually be, be able to be fairly handy, uh, because not only will it allow farmers to be able to kind of control, uh, what they're doing and when they're doing it, if conditions are, are adequate, um, if we do start getting some of these drier conditions, um, then maybe they can think about the fact that, well, you know, maybe if it's going to end up being dry and the longer range forecast is dry, uh, you know, maybe I can cut back a little bit on what I need to put on uh, because if the crop's not going to be using it, then it's it's just uh, money out of your pocket instead of in your pocket. So um, it's going to be interesting and it's exciting. It's really exciting to think about how we're going to have uh, to think about management and work with the growers to, 
to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the crop uh, and, and the producers for, for achieving high yields, um, but also trying to think about that profitability aspect. And, and uh, you know, certainly we can't forget about some of the environmental quality things that will go along with some of that, too. That's, you know, that's interesting, Jeff. It really kind of gets back to what we've been stressing when we teach our Nitrogen Smart program. Uh, and I think a lot of producers will identify with the thought that average just isn't really good enough. And, and because there's never really average, it's just lumping everything all together. Uh, you know, one of the things, uh, the concepts that I know Dan Kaiser has brought to us uh, uh, regarding, for instance, uh, potassium and phosphorus, uh, applications is instead of looking at average uh, average yield increase and so forth as probability of yield increase. And, and in reality, if we start thinking about uh, all, really all, a lot of our decisions and nitrogen management uh, is, is a prime example of this, uh, instead of saying on average, we need this, instead we say, when the conditions are like this, we need to do X. And when the conditions are like this, we need to do Y. And we need to stop thinking about that. We just kind of do, uh, in general, the same thing every year, uh, that the conditions that cause the need for adjustment are knowable. And so if you understand better how the soil moisture and how the, the climate conditions, the temperature, and some of those things affect those, you can actually be adapting and adjusting your management from one year to the next uh, I realize that our, our fertilizer suppliers uh, uh, get a little bit of heartburn with that because it makes it very difficult to plan uh, uh, their activities. But from a farmer level, um, you know, that's maybe something we need to be stressing a little bit more is, is really looking at conditions and then uh, changing our management based on that. You know, Brad, that's really, really awesome. And, and the thing that popped into my head when you were talking, and, and Lindsay and I have been part of this uh, this uh, initiative uh, over the last few months is, is the, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's new, but it's not new. Uh, and that's the EROC effort and, and looking at some of the, uh, uh, the weather stations that, that they've been putting around the state. Uh, you know, all of our ROCs have had, uh, you know, weather data that we share with our growers uh, on our websites. Um, but now we've got this coordinated effort where we're, we're trying to get it sort of in a platform that's, it's, uh, um, maybe a little bit more uniform. But what I was going to drive with this is, is the fact that, you know, as, we, as we're moving forward in time uh, and we have these resources of technology, uh, you know, as farmers maybe, you know, farming and, you know, you know, areas further away from home. In some cases, I know farmers around here that are farming 20, 30 miles away and the conditions may be different there. The beauty of having some of these networks of, of precipitation, uh, soil moisture measurements and things like that um, provide some technology that the farmers should be able to have, you know, at their fingertips right on their phones or, or through their computers to say, okay, you know, what does it look like here? You know, is this going to be fit? And, and I think it also is useful when we think about about you know the the ideas of being able to look at well, what are the current soil temperatures what's the forecast looking like to kind of help some of those management decisions uh, not only just for planting but also maybe for some of those uh, fertilizer applications and and one of the things that I I've you know I I, I as a as a again as sort of a, a soil physics guy. Uh, it, 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 I, I get, uh, I get indigestion. I get heartburn when, you know, I know that maybe conditions are not so suitable, but we need to get planting. Um, and, you know, so people, you know, maybe tend to compact things a little bit. So we, we've got to also kind of keep that in mind because that compaction can hang around for a long time. 
Yeah, and I think I think there's been a lot of work that us as the you know UMN nutrient management team have done that shows we know that the precipitation and the soil moisture are affecting our soil fertility and our nitrogen rates. And I definitely think we're at a point where, you know, we just need to start looking, well, what do we actually do about it? And some of that challenge is, well, we don't have any better prediction of what's going to happen from day to day or week to week than anybody else does. But I still think that is a really critically important uh next area for us as researchers to really dig into so that so that we can help provide some of that more tailored tailored to the season uh, information. Well, like one area that I had a detailed conversation with a grower earlier this week uh, who was talking about doing a urea application early in the morning when the ground is frozen that it's too wet to get out there. And uh, so he was kind of curious about uh, uh, what my my thoughts of that were, and that's a very complicated situation. In general, I don't really like the practice. Uh, it is quite risky, but uh, under the circumstance, it's, it's possible it could be okay. I think a lot of it really uh, relates to uh, what the capacity is in the soil to absorb more moisture. Okay, so if the problem is that when it's uh, thawed out later in the day, you can't drive out there, then just exactly how wet is it? Because what you really want is, is so if you're applying that urea early in the morning, um, then when it thaws out, you want that to be getting into the ground. You don't want it to be just simply dissolving and then being a thin layer on the surface, which uh, makes it very susceptible to loss uh, uh, through uh, through the urease process. And so, uh, you know, in particular, that's something to be uh, thinking about. Uh, if there's capacity and there's rain in the forecast, uh, then it's probably all right. But of course, you need to be very careful if you're applying it on frozen ground uh, and it stays cold and then it rains, you could dissolve all that urea and just run the whole works right off the field. And so that could be a very, very uh, bad, uh, uh, in, in, many, in many respects, bad for, for you'll, you'll need to come back and apply a full rate. Uh, nitrogen is very expensive, uh, but then also bad for the environment too, to be losing that amount of nitrogen, just simply uh, dissolving and running off the field. And so uh, really it's, it's going to be very challenging uh, moving forward, uh, farmers are going to really have to stay on top of what their field conditions are like. All right. Any last words from the group? Well, I think I just want to stress what I said uh, earlier, and that is uh, I think farmers need to, to be kind of looking uh, systematically at what, uh, what all types of work they need to get done, uh, prioritizing that when time is short. And in particular, uh, while, while uh, you may have a preferred order that the field operations happen in, uh, as I've said before, in a lot of cases, nitrogen application can be uh, forgiving as far as when you get that on, uh, provided there's enough to get the crop started and the, the demands of a corn plant are actually quite small uh, when the plant is quite small. And so really, if you just look at the um, the circumstances where you're more likely to run into problems, corn on corn, high residue, uh, and so forth, uh, uh, and prioritize those. But then after that, probably prioritize getting out and planting and, and looking at applying the bulk of your nitrogen fertilizer, maybe after you got the crop planted. All right. That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>